0: Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.
1: Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Nick. And this is our review of Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Starring Russell Crowe, Paul Bettany, James D'Arcy, based on the novels by Patrick O'Brien, directed by Peter Weir, released in 2003 to heavy critical acclaim, had a little bit of box office success, mostly overseas, and a lot of award nominations, including Best Cinematography for Russell Boyd. Nick, you picked this one, so uh, do tell what's up with Master and Commander.
0: Actually, I picked it because of what happened on Twitter um, (laughs) a couple days ago. I don't know if you saw this in the, it's one of these stupid, like, you know, gossipy, crappy news stories, which basically is about 95% of them. But um, it was somebody was giving some advice on how to fall asleep. And they said, if you want to fall asleep really easy, put on Russell Crowe's master and commander. And Russell Crowe actually responded to him on uh, Twitter because we all know Russell Crowe is He's never really shied away from a confrontation. So, at least his reputation says that. So, yeah, it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that movie. I remember really, really liking it because I saw it in the theaters back in, you know, 2000. three man i was only 19 years old so decided to see where it was wanted to see if it was on 4k it was not on 4k they had a blu-ray and then i decided i'm like well i got like 25 different streaming platforms that i subscribe <laughs> to it has to be on one of them and sure enough it was on prime of all places so i was yeah. like oh okay cool i don't have to buy it save me you know 15 bucks here so yeah so then when you kind of brought up about doing a movie review i was like you know what i'm going to start watching this one and you know, maybe this would be a good one to talk about because it is something that has a little bit more substance than, you know, some of the movies we talked about in the past. So, yeah,
1: here we yeah, are. It's, it's a little higher brow than, like, The Kindred uh, and some of the other just, things we've just done. A, just a tad. Just a Critters tad. 4, you know. Uh, you know, the thing is, man, I didn't see this in theaters. Gosh, I wish I had because uh, I can only imagine how it looked. I know I've seen it before, like, whether it was on cable or, you know, something like that. I've seen parts of it before because it's the kind of thing that would interest me. I grew up watching naval battle movies with my dad you know stuff like torpedo run and run silent run usually submarine movies but any kind of movie like this um to deal with naval stuff like he was final into, i would watch it so yeah i know i've seen this one before but i remembered so very little of it going into it and it was fun to put on a movie that I didn't have any real strong connections to it or whatever, and just sort of let it wash over me. And I did see that Twitter kerfluffle, um, and I happen to think Peter Weir's a pretty good director. I thought, you know what, I'm I'm game to give this a try. I knew it was again had a lot of critical acclaim, had won some Academy Awards. And I always thought of it as, you know, they gave it a subtitle, Master and Commander, the far side of the world. And I was like, I don't know if that was a studio decision or what, like they were trying to build a franchise out of this, because this was around the time like Pirates of the Caribbean was becoming a thing. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there's a story to that or not. I know it's based off of like 20 different novels or something. Yeah, And, and they just the- took a bunch of it together to, to make this story. So I don't know if they were trying to make a thing out of it or if you know, somebody just needed to throw a subtitle on there
0: no they totally were trying to make a franchise out of it um what the plan was was that yeah they were going to kind of like loosely adapt the books Where this one i think was kind of a loose adaptation of like three different books as far as the different plot elements go and what they had hoped was that it would kick off a franchise and it was something where it was kind of just is one of those like meddling successes where the box office wasn't set on fire kind of made its money back and you know, what, where this movie actually really picked up steam was on the DVD market. A lot of people kind of discovered it there, but because it didn't really set the box office, uh, you know, on fire, it never, you know, really got a sequel. There was some talks about it throughout the years. And even like about three years ago, it started to kind of really kind of like pick up steam because someone had asked Russell Crowe, like, why is there not a sequel to this movie? It was like, you know, as we get into it, it was kind of set up for one at the end. And he goes, well, you can talk to Peter Weir and the uh, heads over at – I forget which studio was involved in this because there was three different studios involved in this movie. And he's like, ask them. And then it kind of just fell aside again. And that's kind of the big thing with this movie is with the three studios that were involved in it, it was a very expensive movie to make. And I think when you have so many different hands involved in it and because it just – you know, it probably did make a profit and everything like that with the old DVD sales and the recognition that it got. It probably was something it's like, are people really clamoring for another one of these? Or should we just kind of leave it as a one is? And I think that's basically what it's going to be. We're not we're not ever going to see a sequel, which is which is a shame.
1: Yeah, no, I I would agree. And look, Peter Weir had had done a lot of good work up at this point. He did Witness, Dead Poet Society, Green Card, which is like one of the best rom-coms of all time. He did The Truman Show, uh, which if you've seen that, the Ed Harris character is very much playing Peter Weir as an American. I mean, this is a guy who's been around and done a lot of stuff and I, and I get it. I would get why you would want to do this. The other thing that crushed this movie was it came out at the same time as the Lord of the Rings return of the King, which was so massive. And that won all the awards and everything else. I mean, it only, you know, it beat uh, best cinematography and sound editing for those, but otherwise it didn't stand a chance against uh,
0: return of the King. And well, let's not also forget Pirates of the Caribbean came out that same year, yep. which you have another Big, massive movie out there on sea where that movie was a little bit more, I guess you could say popcorn fluff and everything like that. And then this movie is a lot more of your, you know, you could call one more of your box office bait and this one's more of your Oscar bait.
1: Yeah, this one's much more steeped into the realism of what it would have been like to be in the Royal Navy in the Napoleonic Wars. And, I, you know, Fox was involved in this, Miramax was involved in this, Universal was involved in this, Golden was involved. In it. You had a lot of different production companies. I think you you nailed it. There's a lot of hands touching this and trying to make it a thing. And what's amazing is that they got the movie that they got out of it, knowing there was so much meddling going on. There's not a ton of behind the scenes stuff I was able to find other than just those quotes about Russell Crowe going, hey, I wanted to do a ton of them, but go ask the studio, you know and this is Russell Crowe in the wake of Gladiator it's about 5 years from that at this point i mean he is a mega star so when you put him in a movie there's an expectation you know, he brings a raw intensity to everything he plays uh, because I think he's kind of rawly intense as a person. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Okay. Yeah, and and then you get and then you get you know good actors running Paul Bettany, James DRC. There's a ton of people in this cast that if you look for them, you've seen them in other things, but you know you don't know them by name necessarily. And I think that's what makes this fun uh, to do this. And this is 2003. This is before CGI has completely taken over are effects making movies right like a lot of this is very practical and you can tell it's done on a set you know and so the the backgrounds are are generated and matted and all that stuff but the you know the boat is actually a boat and you know they they use a lot of the a lot of the set to make it work and they use a lot of a period accurate technology if you will to get it going. And, and, you know, you got your two lead stars learned how to play the cello and the violin for the friggin' role. I mean, that's pretty amazing. It's what, it's one thing for actors to learn how to pan a mom. It's another thing for them to actually learn how to play the
0: instrument. Yeah, totally. And I think you kind of, you know, it's interesting when you talk about like Russell Crowe and kind of his reputation at the time as kind of being, you know, I don't know, it was kind of like a Bruce Willis style, you know, from like the early nineties, late eighties. And that's kind of like what he was over. Like, he's like, you know, the guy that you kind of thought of as just being kind of the uh, rough and tumble everyman. So to speak, because that's clearly what he played in Gladiator. Earlier, you know, he was like a genius, you know, military tact, you know, tactician. He also was, you know, a guy you could relate to. He wasn't bigger than life. He wasn't like looking at like Arnold Schwarzenegger or something like that. He was like, right. you know, he looks like a guy who, you know, you could run into at a bar. And I think that's kind of the other thing with this movie, though, is to see him in a role more like this, where it is a military role, but if with the whole naval aspect there, it's not really something where you're going to expect him to be showing brawn and being like you know hand-to-hand fighting in combat it's going to be more of like a you know a tactician style thing so while he was a draw there i still think the role was something a little bit outside the realm of what people were expecting from him at the time
1: oh completely i mean it it, like you say it gets to show off his tactician side of things and i guess we should get into it here nick do a quick plot summary of Mm -hmm. master and commander and then we can break down the movie Captain Jack Aubrey, played by Russell Crowe, commands the HMS Surprise, and he's on the trail of the French warship Acheron. The Acheron ambushes the Surprise off the coast of Brazil and badly damages the British vessel because it's twice its size and has twice the guns. Aubrey decides to refit his ship at sea, though, rather than putting into port while chasing the Acheron south, convinced its own mission to decimate the British whaling fleet, which would decimate the economy in the time. The surprise crew fights off restlessness, and they escape the uh, trailing Acheron one time at night, and Aubrey and his commanders tried their best to keep their men focused. The ship's doctor, Stephen Macharon, explores the Galapagos Islands, cataloging different species, clearly interested in the science research of it, but also loyal to his captain and his friend. On one of those expeditions, he sees the Acheron on the other side of the island, so the surprise readies an attack, disguising itself as a whaler to lure the larger ship in closer. And once close, Aubrey and his men unload the trap and drop fury on the Acheron. They blow the main mast over. Many of the men board the, the other ship. There's sword fights and single-shot pistol fights. There's Marines you know, shooting down from above. A lot of people are killed, but in the end, the surprise wins the battle. And as they bury their dead at sea, Aubrey promotes his loyal first lieutenant to captain and sends him to take the captured Acheron under his command as the crew of the surprise refit and head back to sea. And that's kind of a straightforward thing. This is a two and a half hour movie. You're going to get a lot of stuff. And the thing I like about this one is like most good period war movies, there's a good formula to them. And I think all the best ones throw you into the action very quickly. We get a battle in the first... 10, 15 minutes of this, and we see just how outgunned and outmatched the surprise is against the Acheron.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, you're talking about a ship that's bigger, stronger, faster, and also has twice as many guns. I want to say that the, uh, um, the surprise is like a 22-gun ship, whereas you said, this one's over 40. So one side of the ship has just as many guns as that ship does on both sides. And You can see, I mean, they, they escape with the, you know, the skin of their teeth. They're able to get out there and, you know, you kind of start kind of seeing Jack as kind of this, you know, tactician here where he understands that they're outgunned, they're outmatched, they're out everything in this, and he has to get out of there. There's no, there's no shame in retreat here. And so what he does is like, he said, he sees that there's fog settling in. We need to get into the fog get ahead of these guys. That way we can take cover in there. And it's, it's a great opening to the movie. It's one that, you know, a lot of these movies, you really don't really think it's going to start with something like that. You think it's going to be kind of a slow build. Okay. We're going to get to know the characters. We're going to get to know this. And then you're going to kind of learn about things as it goes in. It just throws you right into it right away. And it's great. I mean, when you, especially listening to something like that, on like, you know, if you got like a good sound system and everything, just hearing the blast of the cannon and just seeing the damage that it does. It's like, it's, it's impressive what they've been able to do with this movie as far as the sets go.
1: Yeah, it's something to think about too the kind of projectiles that they're firing. Those cannonballs, you know, they call them the 9-pounder, the 12-pounder, you know, the 14-pounder. They're just big hunks of lead. And the the role of a cannonball is to rip through your ship and cause as much collateral damage as it possibly can. If it hits people, all the better, but what it's really there to do is put holes in a boat, and that's the worst thing that you can have at sea is holes in a boat, and the other thing, and and you'll see this is part of the tactician of the surprise later on too, they're really always firing it at one thing. They're firing at the center mast. They're trying to hit the big pole with the big sail on it. Cause if you knock that thing over one, you might sink the ship, you know? And if you don't, you've definitely crippled it. There are no engines, you know, you can row a little bit, but you can't do a lot with it. You, you've got to get these sails up. The men have got to rig those around and catch the wind in the right way so that they can fight each other. And I don't know, there's just something cool about, this era of the world when we didn't have as much machinery as we do now. And you really had to think the long game out if you were going to run from somebody. And you know, Aubrey realizes very quickly, I'm outgunned, but I'm not outflanked. I can move faster because we're smaller. We've taken some damage. Let's let's get into that fog. It also introduces us to our other main character, Maturin. and we get to see the role of the ship's doctor. He's like the science wing, you know, he's if Bones McCoy wasn't a drunk weirdo, uh, this is what he would have been doing in real life. He's mm-hmm. working on these guys that are, you know, shot up and cut up. He's got a whole, you know, deck full of guys that he's just trying to, you know, keep ha- alive in some ways he's pulling rounds out of them he's he's got to cut off one you know young boy's arm i mean there's all kinds of sacrifices being made in this and what you realize about these two men in their positions is that they trust their men they believe in their men they care about them but they also realize they've got to make the hard choices and that's what this movie is really going to be about is can you make the hard choices when you need to
0: And I think you hit it spot on when you brought up Kirk and, uh, bones is really, that's kind of the relationship here, or maybe even kind of like Kirk and Spock Mm -hmm. where you have, you know, this kind of like give and take between them, where they're both leaders. They're both looked upon, you know, fondly by all the men, but their attributes and everything like that are only made stronger by each other. And, you know, like the lead and the leadership that you see with Russell Crowe is made stronger by the intelligence that is you know paul bettany's character here and i think it's great too i mean just even like when these opening scene when you, when you see like this whole battle happening um you see paul bettany's character just you know he's getting ready you know he's you know why the other guys up there are arming and they're getting ready to go fight he's down there you know laying down you know you could just say like blankets or whatever and getting his surgical tools ready because he knows he's in for a long night where he's going to, like you said, be, you know, committing, you know, doing surgery on them and everything like that. And I think it was, you know, it just kind of shows like a lot of like the different roles here. And even like the men down below, one thing I really liked about this movie is it's not just all about the leaders there. I mean, that's one thing you can kind of talk about with like with, you know, some other stuff you know we want to talk about like you know big you know sprawling epics like game of thrones it's like you only know about the, the the you know you learn more about the the main players you don't learn a lot about the people that are following them but then in this movie though we get a nice view of actually what it's like to be one of the uh the one of the crew and you kind of learn through just kind of like smart dialogue that these men aren't sailors these are guys that were picked out from their homes to go serve it was like it's an honor to go serve for the queen's navy go get on the boat and you can kind of see that because at the same time you're seeing that these men have to report the children and these men i mean again with the dialogue there i love the way that they don't just kind of bash it over your head it's like the boy who got his arm cut off russell crowe knows his father and you can tell right there it's like that boy was put underneath him because of the relationship that he has with the father and you know that these people come from kind of almost like a caste system where they are more the you know, upper middle class, if not upper class. And that's why they're in these roles where the lower class are the people that are going to be reporting to them. You know, screw age. It's just the way it is at that time.
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's the same as it's always been Through military is that the enlisted men, the rank and file service guys are not the officers, right? Mm. They've, there's always been mm-hmm. that kind of system between the two of them. And the best war movies do a good balance, like you say, of showing us the commanders and the guys down below that are actually pulling it off. And what's neat to think about a ship like this, it's no different than the naval ships we have today. You just don't think about it in these terms. There are guys on that ship that don't know anything about how to fight. They don't know anything about war. They don't know anything about missiles or any of that crap. They're there to like do carpentry work and paint. And you know, sew things and and get the the uh, you know the sail upright, and they keep the ropes going. And you know, and you know, there's what they're there to do. They don't know anything about naval combat. As just today, you know, we got guys on on ships that are there to program the software. They don't know anything about you know the the Triton warhead or any of that other stuff. You know, that's not what they're there to do. Oh, yeah, they're, everybody they're everybody's their got job. their job. Yeah, exactly. And and that's the thing is you see these men do their jobs and I love that one old guy that keeps like he's got the tattoos on his knuckles, Ozzy Osbourne style, that say hold fast. You know, and he he's mm-hmm. you know he gets knocked in the head. They have to do surgery on him, and Paul Bettany has to put a coin in his skull when he digs something out. I mean, it's really gross, right? But he tells you know those those guys, those younger guys in particular, you better hold fast. And what he's telling them is you better hold on because when it starts going down, it, it goes down for real out here. Like it is, it is a incredible bunch of chaos that happens when they get into a fight.
0: Oh, totally, totally. And like I said, you know, kind of the things that I really, really like about this movie is it feels authentic. It's like after this whole attack happens and they escape to the fog and you hear about him, you know, the, the one guys, they make, they make a model ship going like, hey, he happened to see the ship being built over the United States when he's visiting his sister and stuff. I mean, kind of convenient, but, you know, just so he's able to kind of understand. But it's good for the audience, though, because you can see that they understand that they're outmatched in every way. But so it's going to come down to seamanship. It's like we don't have any advantage physically over the ship. They're going to have more crew. They're going to be bigger. They're bigger, stronger, faster, everything here. So we have to figure out a different way to beat them. And that's when Russell Crowe will tell you on there. It's like, you know, the uh, stern of the ship, the bow and everything like that is always going to be the weak point. So that's all we have to go for. But what I like, though, is kind of just like the little moments in this movie, like when in between battles, they show them going to an island and they show them kind of like how, how it was back then. It was when you'd go to a place like, you know, someplace off of Brazil or someplace up in the Caribbean and the locals there would, or the natives would see you. I mean, they saw it as kind of a trading opportunity. So you got the whole ship being surrounded by people. They're going to trade, they're going to do this. But the thing I actually find really kind of interesting is just kind of the, uh, the carpentry that goes on in that boat, how they're able to just repair that boat, even from the, uh, you know, the female figurine statue or whatever you want to call it on the bow of the ship and everything. And just how, you know, these guys are just, they're, they're great at their jobs. And it's just, it's, it's such a cool, like I said, time period to actually kind of witness. Well,
1: it's neat to watch you, you watch the surgeon perform surgery and he's just using what he has around him, right? The coin to, to Mm -hmm. fill in the spot in the skull. And that's what they're doing when they're carving up that, that figurine on the front, they're taking the wood off of it so they can patch up the holes you know, and they've got the pitch to make it work. I mean, it's it's talk about being resourceful. And again, you know, my dad was in the Navy. He, he talked about that a lot. He said, you, you had to be incredibly resourceful because when you're at sea, you're at sea, you know, you don't run alongside another ship unless there's something bad wrong. Like you're out there doing your job. They're doing their job. You got to keep this thing running. And I mean, it's a small town that they're basically running out there. And yeah, I'm with you when they go to the Galapagos and they've got the, the natives there who are trading with them and they're back and forth. And you see those, those small moments with Russell Crowe and he looks at that pretty woman and he just kind of thinks about a life that he, he does, he can't have. Right. Cause he's at sea. I mean, the sea is a battlefield, just like it, if he was marching an army across a field. And I don't mm-hmm. know, there's just those moments of that. And you also see too, like when the crew is cooking and they're trying to get everything ready and him and the doctor take it upon themselves to entertain the crew you know, by playing the cello and and violin and they're trying Mm -hmm. to pick out something lively, something that'll pick up everybody's spirits. And that's part of the leadership that comes in being in command, particularly in isolated command situations like that. You got to keep everybody you know kind of focused, but you also got to let them have a little fun without getting out of control. So you control the entertainment. And I thought that was cool that, you know, again, he and Betty learned how to do that for the movie and that, the reason they're doing it is to try to keep their men motivated and let them know like, Hey, we care about you. We hear you. Let's entertain you for a little bit.
0: Oh, the, the, the men's, I mean, that's the whole thing. It's not even just about the mission and you know what they have to do. It's he has to keep the men, you know, focused and it's, it's on the knife's edge the entire time because, you know, you know, we're back, you know, we're here on dry land and everything like that. There's, there's processes, there's checks and balances. I mean, you're out on the sea. There's none of that. And if those men wanted to form a mutiny and take them over, there's nothing stopping them. So it's like you have to lead by example and make, you make it seem like, you know what, like they need you. And I think just kind of like things like that, kind of like when they're playing music and everything, kind of adds almost a mystique on the boat where it's kind of like showing, you know, it's bringing the men together and everything like that. But the kind of the elements though that I really like too is just when they're having dinner. And I wish we kind of would have got more of that as well. Is just you know them telling stories and just kind of the uh, the camaraderie that's there, that brotherhood of the officers, and you know it's like they're talking about Lord Nelson, this you know you know mythical you know guy that Russell Crowe's character uh, served under, and just you know hey you know why don't you uh, favor us with an anecdote and everything and just kind of tell us stories about him, and it's funny. I mean it's kind of funny seeing this stuff where it's like you know the actual people that they're you know, just maybe a, you know, smidge underneath Russell Crowe, as far as where they stand on the boat are, you know, they're enthralled and everything by these stories and they're able to kind of bond over it. It's also where you see the transfer of respect that the
1: men have for their commander and that he replays back to them too. I mean, they know their place. He knows his role too, but he never treats them like servants. You know, he gives them orders. They follow those orders. He rewards them for doing that. He praises them. You know, it's the good balance of leadership, right? And you see the juxtaposition of that with one of his young officers, Hallman, Hallam, rather, who is unpopular with the crew because he's always trying to be their friend, right? And they've nicknamed the poor guy Jonah. You know, which is a terrible thing to name somebody that's going to be on a boat because that does not go well if you know mm-hmm. the story of Jonah. And, I, you know, you watch the tension rise with that guy and you, you get the one guy that refuses to salute him on deck. And that is like punishable by death because insubordination, you can't handle it on a boat because what you get, you get a mutiny and then you got more problems than you're know, trying to chase the French ship.
0: Oh, totally. And that's the whole thing is like the character of Hollum is, you know, you kind of learn about it throughout, you know, just the dialogue is like that first battle, the guy, the men that he was in charge with were the ones that died. And he was yeah. the only one left alive. And so they kind of started seeing him as a curse upon the ship is like this guy did this. I mean, there's a scene later where there's heavy wind and heavy storms and a, one of the crewmen who's very popular gets lost out at sea and Hollem was supposed to go up there and relieve him. And he froze underneath pressure and, you know, was holding on to the mask. I can't blame the guy. But, uh, you know, all of a sudden now the crew sees him as cursed. And there's there's a scene with Russell Crowe, too, where he's talking to Paul Bettany. And Paul Bettany's like, you know, they're talking about this whole, like, Jonah curse with him. And he looks at him and he's like, you don't believe that, do you? And Russell Crowe is kind of like, he kind of gives, like, a shrug. And I took it as, like, he's not necessarily that he believes it it's if the crew believes it, it's going to happen. It's kind of like that mind over matter type thing where it's like any bad thing that happens is going to be put on this guy. So if they don't get rain, it's on this guy. If there's no wind, it's on this guy. And that's the way he kind of saw it. And yeah, they end up, you know, the crew with just the level of disrespect and just the uh, shady eyes, he ends up having to... You know, he commits suicide. He grabs a, you know, cannonball and walks over the edge and goes down. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 like I said, it's, uh, you know, one of those scenes that like you kind of see that even the people on top, you know, actually will have, you know, they have issues and it's not all peaches and cream and everything. And like you said, you know, Russell Crowe kind of put it to him where it's like, you know, to be a leader, you can't be their friend, but you can't be a tyrant. It's the whole trick of finding somewhere in between. And unfortunately he was just not someone that could.
1: I mean, what, what happens is the guy who doesn't salute him gets flogged in front of everybody. And the next time he walks in front of those men, every one of them snap real quick to salute because they don't want to be the next one. And you can mm-hmm. see the look on his face is like, I didn't I didn't want that to happen. That's just procedure. And that's when he realizes, like, I'll never have the respect of these men. And it's a sad moment. He, he shares with that. Uh, the one arm boy. And he says, "I thank you for always being kind to me." And then he just steps off the side, and he just sinks with that cannonball. And it's like, Well, wow, what a sad, horrible way to end, you know? But it's right in the middle of this movie, and it is a changing point in things because at that point, you know, they, they have the service the next morning, and Aubrey does the thing he has to do. He says, "Okay, time to resume the chase," and they get back out there and they start they start looking for the Acheron again because they're convinced. And as particularly Aubrey, that if we don't catch them, they're gonna wreck our whaling facilities around the cape here, and that that is a i mean it's hard to put a point on how important that was in this time period of history, Dick, that was major economy. It would be like for us, if you shut down all the oil pipelines and like completely worldwide, or you disrupt a major supply chain or telecommunications or something, it would, it would be catastrophic for the British to lose whaling ships to their enemy
0: at that time. Oh, totally, totally. And I think, you know, it's something that, you know, Russell Crowe's, you know, it's, it's a struggle for him because he understands that, you know, it's a big risk in going after him, but he, it's his duty that he has to, and he even brings it up to that, you know, he was only ordered to basically stay around Brazil and this whole mission of like tracking down the ship and taking it down is his own, which, you know, can, you know, bring a lot of questions up to it with a lot of people going like, you know, are we on a suicide mission? Like, what's the point of this? You know, if we can't, if we're just, are we just going to be another casualty to this boat over here? But Probably my favorite part of the movie, though, too, is as they get going over there, they get over to the Galapagos and everything like that. And it kind of like the movie, it slows down finally. It breathes. It allows you to kind of, you know, basically understand Paul Bettany's character because he's, you know, he's a scientist. He's a doctor. He's a scientist. He's a man that loves all that stuff. And He's all excited to go to the Galapagos and being able to study animals because one thing, if you know anything about the Galapagos is, you know, that's a lot of stuff there as far as like the different islands and kind of like showing the different evolution of uh, animals that have lived there and kind of like how they, you know, the different traits that they have and, you know, how it's kind of led to a lot of stuff like a lot of advances in science. So he's excited to go out there and be able to, you know, study these new creatures that are, you know, foreign and strange to them at the time. And this is when you first get kind of like the conflict between him and Russell Crowe because his thing is like, I want to go do this. But Russell Crowe is he's still chasing this phantom ship is what the crew calls it. And what happens, it leads to actually Paul Bettany getting shot by one of the uh, Marines that's on the boat. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it leads to a pretty uh, brutal like self-surgery scene where, you know, he's the doctor. And what do you do when the doctor needs surgery? Well, the doctor performs surgery on himself. (laughs) Yeah, you hold the mirror
1: up and you let him do it. I think we should talk about it. It's almost played off like comedy. that The the captain of the Royal Marines is trying to shoot an albatross. He's trying to shoot this bird, and he accidentally shoots the doctor who walks in front of it at the wrong time. And it's like, oh, oh, I'm, my bad. He shoots him right in the flank, too. So it's right in the meat of his side. And what I think is neat about it is his surgery assistant, who is just, you can tell he is just trying so hard, but he has no idea what he's doing is going to go, I'll have to figure it out. I'll have to cut, op- cut him open and get that, you know, that wad out and all that before it festers. And, I, and, and Paul Bettany is like, Mm-mm, I'm doing this myself. Hold the mirror. And he does it himself. And it just shows you, too, the kind of resolve that he has. And that while he, you know, he gets, he gets kind of mad at Aubrey because he drags him off the island first because they're, they're going on another run. And in between that time, they, they have to find a way to hide again. And they come up with this genius idea of deploying this. It's almost like a cannon float out there or a, you know, a barrel float. And they put a bunch of lamps on it and they shut off all the they turn off all the lamps on the on the boat so that it can slip away into the night and that the uh, the Akron will chase that that, uh, you know, ghost, if you will. Of oh, yeah. own. And after he's done the surgery on himself, then as kind of a reward, Aubrey's like, you can go back on the island for a couple of days. I know that's what you want to do. And I, I liked that there was that respect between those two men that even though I have to tell you to do something you don't want to do right now, I, I'll make it up to you later.
0: Totally. Totally. And I think, you know, the whole element too with them staying on the Galapagos for a few days and everything or a week was, I mean, they're not stupid. I mean, the fact that the doctor, he needs to recover, they need him. And they're lucky that it went out the way it was. But one of the funny things I just it's a little moment in the surgery scene that I just liked where, you know, the one guy's holding the mirror and then he goes and like looks at the other guy and he kind of brings the mirror with him and he's like, please, the mirror. You know, it's like (laughs) your one job is to hold that mirror. You're not even doing it. And it just kind of shows you like, you know, even with you know, even when he's on his surgery bed, he's still in charge uh, with, you know, with, with what's going on. And you show a little bit of humanity with Russell Crowe's character because, you know, he's used to seeing battle and people being killed and everything like this. But this is something new to him, something he's never experienced, And especially with someone who's his best friend. And you could see him just the whole time having trouble even just kind of holding his wits as he watches uh, him just commit surgery on himself to be able to get the uh, the ball and, you know, fabric out of his stomach.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's a great character moment to watch Crow go through all those emotions and to kind of let his hair down, literally. I mean, he takes his hair out of the bun and all that. And he walks out in front of the men and he gives them the nod because they're all like waiting. Cause they know how screwed they are. If the doctor dies too, you know, not because they don't trust the other guy, but they just know how good he is. Right. And, and you would be, especially in those times. You I wouldn't would trust the, the truck, other guy.
0: The other guy looks like he's probably better set to, uh, <laughs> to you know, trim the chicken in the kitchen, so to speak.
1: <laughs> yeah, probably so. Yeah, probably so. But they, they, that's a neat moment when he gives them the nod and they're all like, ah, oh, this big sigh of relief, you know? Right. And it's it's a it's a moment in this movie where it takes time to slow down. And I, and I so appreciate that because, you know, look, Pirates of the Caribbean is a fun movie. That first one in particular, that's a fun movie. It never takes time to breathe. And maybe that's why it's fun. Because if it did, you would realize how stupid it was because it is kind of dumb. This movie though knows it's smart but it's not going to beat you over the head with it. And I appreciate that Peter Weir allows it to slow down and calm down. And we're walking around, you know, we, we got guys chasing, you know, lizards on the Island and trying to pick them up and all the different ways they're trying to measure the turtle's head. And we're taking time to do that. And, you know, you just wouldn't do that in, in your big blockbuster flick. It's, it's a neat trait. That's something very specific to this kind of drama.
0: It is, and I think also what you're kind of seeing here is Liana with uh, like, with um, the doctor's character is when it's coming to like collecting these specimens and everything like that. There's something he keeps on saying over and over again, and I thought it was actually kind of interesting. I had to think, I had to sit back and go, like, why do they keep bringing this up? And he keeps bringing up that it's like I'm going to present this to the the royals. I'm going to mm-hmm. present this to the king. And, oh, you're going to present this. You're going to present their offspring. We're going to bring it here. And I'm just like, why does he keep beating over the head with the fact that he's going to go and present this? And it's like, well, of course, because, you know, you look at, like, Russell Cole, and it's like he gets all the credit for everything in the battle. He doesn't get any credit. You know, he's a doctor. He's saving lives. And without him, they're screwed. But Russell Crowe's the quarterback. He's kind of like the kicker. You know what I mean? It's like the quarterback's always going to get that. Or maybe he's like the offensive lineman where it's like, you know, he's just got to do his job. And, it's kind of like the old, That's kind of his way for him to get fame, in a way. That's what he is going to, you know. That's how he's going to get recognition. He's never going to get recognition for saving lives of his men, which is a shame. So maybe he can get recognition for scientific discoveries when he goes and brings a Galapagos iguana over to the king, and they name it after you know whoever and stuff like that. So it is. It's like a pride thing to him. Where, and I think that's where you kind of get just a little bit of a conflict between the two characters because there's there's an argument where, you know, earlier before he gets shot that, you know, they're going to take off and they're going to go chase down the Acheron. And you could tell him he's he's pissed off. He's like, I, you know, you promised me this, I want to do this. And you understand it's, you know, it's a scientific thing and also a pride thing for him. And then Russell Crowe just tells me, no, we don't have time for your damn hobbies. And you can see how much that like, you know, that, that hit him to the soul. Yeah, He's like, Oh my God, you know, this is, this is my thing. And you're telling me it's trivial and everything that you're going to do is, you know, so much better and so much, you know, more important than I do. So it's, it's just, I, I like that dynamic where it's showing that, you know, they're both on the same side, but yet they both have different interests and everything. So it's just, again, yeah. it's just small moments throughout this movie that are just, like I said, they're just, are, they're, they're, they're fantastic.
1: And it's in one of those small moments that the doctor actually makes the big military discovery. He realizes the ship is hiding on the other side of the island, the Acheron is. So he runs back with his companions to tell the captain, I know where they are. I know where they're waiting. We can can go get them. And that's when you get the refit for the second battle. And what I love here is in war movies, when you do the tactician speech, there's always that moment where we got to talk about like how we're going to do it, right? How we're ever going to get this done. I think about like U571, where they have that whole bit where Harvey Keitel and Matthew McConaughey are talking about negative, positive buoyancy and getting a bow shot and all this, you know, all that stuff, right? All the jargon. And it's fun mm-hmm. that Russell Crowe is talking about how, look, they are bigger than us. They're stronger than us. We got to get in close quarters to damage them. So one thing we got to do is we got to draw them in close. Well, they're not going to get close to us if they think we're the surprise. So we can make ourselves look like a whaler. So and then they think they're going to come aboard us. They're going to, you know, they won't try to damage us. They're going to try to take us and then we'll have them where we want them. Because if you're close enough, any gun's powerful, you know, and, and anything will work. And what I love is the, all the drilling of the men shooting the cannons and stuff and the genius idea of take the back wheels off the cannons. We won't get to reload, but it'll mean that we don't get any recoil. We don't miss. We'll, we'll get the full brunt of that cannon fire going right into that ship. And that turns out to be such a great move. It's a great tactician move when they finally spring it on the Acheron.
0: Well, and I like the fact that, you know, they use kind of uh, the, the scientific discoveries to help them with their ploy to be able to go and get the ship where it's like, well, a lot of times you have to disguise yourself to be able to get one up on your predator. Mm -hmm. And that's what they end up doing with, you know, being like, okay, well, you know, the stuff that we discovered on the Galapagos and the way that, you know, the scientific discoveries go showing how like insects disguise themselves as, you know, they, they of it's kind of Chekhov's gun throughout the movie when they're showing kind of like these drawings is like, Oh, a bug can be a thorn. Oh, a bug can be, look like a, you know, a spider or an ant, or it can look like, you know, a stick. And that's what they end up doing is like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, disguise ourselves as, you know, crappy whalers that <laughs> are out here. And, you know, I just like it too. It's like, you know, he's yelling, and he's like, no saluting. And it, it's one of the, it's, it's such a small moment too, but it's a funny scene where he's like, all right, I want no uniforms, no sirs, no orderly fashion. And he goes, you got that? And they're like, yes, sir. And it's like, he just said that, you know, don't say yes, sir. You know? Yeah.
1: I mean, he tells them to look like a bunch of whalers, like you don't know what you're doing deploying the sail until I tell you to, you know, like they have to act like they are just, you know, merchants basically that they don't really know what they're doing. They're just kind of figuring it out as they go because it'll lure the disguise in. And what's great about it is not only do they get them close enough that they can blast those cannons at them and shoot that main down, the Marines pop up from the top and start sharpshooting down on them. Yeah. And, I mean, you see the guys loading up, like, charges and everything like that. These are single-shot rifles. You know, this is not, you know, Clint Eastwood even and guns and stuff like that. It's it's so neat to watch the, the combat go down. And you've got – the captain's got four pistols around him. So he's always got four shots, and then he's got swords. And that's what's neat about the – The last 15 minutes of this movie are a swashbuckler movie dream. I mean, it's one of the coolest naval battle scenes I've ever seen put to film. No wonder this one for cinematography, because it looks amazing.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. And, you know, there's there's tacticians in here where it's kind of like we have to remove the, um, you know, the uh, the wheels and everything from the from the cannons and you know by doing that we only get one shot so you kind of make it count because you know we got to do it so we can be able to turn the ship around and be able to use the other sides so i mean it's always like you know d- different elements like that that are kind of just brought up but again it's like i like it because they don't beat it over your head like oh this is what we're going to do and this is what needs to happen it's kind of like just kind of done in passing like This is how we need to operate. This is what's going to happen. This is why we're going to do it like that. So, kind of, it's a rewarding rewatch in a lot of ways. But yeah, totally. I I just I like the way too. It's like even the doctor has to get in on the fighting because that's what it is at the end. It's like you know what? They don't give a shit that you're a doctor. You got to fight for your life and just the battles going in and just kind of even the grenades that they use. I mean, it's like you got to light those up and you got to throw them. I mean, it's it's so old you know old school with the military stuff there but it, it is very cool and then they get down there and they let the whalers out and they all end up taking it but you know in your plot summary too you know after they had win this battle did you catch the twist at the end of this movie
1: yeah that the doctor who who says the captain is dead he it's the captain is posing as the doctor to try to survive
0: yeah Yep. Such a Frenchman move, Jay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> They're in our listenership in France. But yeah, no, I mean, but you're right. It, it is He's trying to play a trick on him and Aubrey doesn't fall for it. That's what's cool about it is that he knows, you know, and that they arrest him. But the, the other thing that I caught in the end of it, it, and you're right to mention all the hand-to-hand combat is great. And, you know, they release the whalers that these guys have already taken prisoner and they basically outfit them with weapons immediately so they can fight for him. And these guys are definitely loyal to who saves them. But oh, yeah. at the end of all of it, when they are done with it, the, the cool thing that, that uh, the Captain Aubrey realizes is that I don't have to execute all these people. When he turns it over to his lieutenant, right, he says, release those prisoners when you get to where you're going. Like He's not a cruel man. And that's what I, I really liked about
0: it. Yeah, because what they're doing is at the end is because the ship, the, uh, the um, Acheron, is basically crippled. It's can only move very slowly and everything like that. So they're going to go take it back to a port, like a nearby port, probably somewhere in Brazil, and get the ship fixed. So that way they can go back to England and be like, you know, it's the prize. I mean, that's the way mm-hmm. it was. I mean, that's the way naval fleets were built back then was – you take over the other man's ship and that's part of you. Now you're part of your fleet. And, you know, it was never the goal of really ever to sh- sink a ship. I mean, that's, that's a big plot point. And this is that they don't want to sink us. They want us for a prize and that's kind of the way it is. But yeah, it's like, you know, he's going to go take it over there. They're going to get it fixed and, you know, just let the guys go. And that's one thing too. It's like, it's kind of just shows like Russell Crowe's character in here that he's not a, he's not a tyrant. He's not an evil man or anything like that. It's like, he's respectful. He, he, you know, obeys the laws, you know, of, you know, the, the, you know, the unspoken, you know, rules of combat and everything like that. So yeah, it's just, again, it's just, it's a great moment at the end too. I just love it that, you know, they're playing the cello, they're playing the violin and it's like, okay, well, we're going to go back to the Acheron. We're going to, you know, make sure that, you know, Pullings there knows that the doctor there is actually the captain. So be careful with that guy. You might want to just, you know, double handcuff him a little bit and we're on to other adventures. And, like I said, you know, kind of we talked about the beginning of this review is that we didn't get any sequels. And it's it's a shame because I, I really, really have loved to seen this crew, you know, from, you know, Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany to the kid from Lord of the Rings. You know what I mean? To actually go and have another adventure and stuff. So it's a shame we got we got more Pirates of the Caribbean movies, but we didn't get more of these.
1: That's true. We'll talk about that and what could have been in a second. But it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations and popcorn ratings. So, Nick, what are yours for Master and Commander, the far
0: side of the world? Oh, this is a this is a very large popcorn. I mean, it's it's a great movie. Even talking about this right now, I kind of want to go back and rewatch it. It's just a movie that I remember back in two thousand three watching it, and I remember seeing it a couple times on cable throughout. And it was always one of those movies that kind of just stuck with me. You know, kind of like a movie. I mean, maybe I'm being a little hyperbolic here, but something almost like The Godfather, where it's just like it's you could watch it at any point and just get drawn into it. Like you could just put it on at the 45 minute mark. And it's like, you know what? I'm just going to keep this on. It's just, it's got great performances. I will say, I think out of all the Russell Crowe movies, this is my favorite with him. I, I love him in this movie. It's, it beats gladiator just by a little bit for me. And, he's like he just demonstrates kind of like a leadership role that you know god i I love to see at my job you know what i mean where it's like we can just sit there and you you believe what this guy says and you most important you believe in him and you know paul bettany too i mean this is the first movie i remember seeing him in and you know he's gone on to do stuff like you know marvel with being in vision and stuff like that and he's wonderful i mean these two are right up there with kirk and bones or kirk and spock or really any other duo that we've seen in movies throughout the years. So it's, it's, it's a hot, one of the highest recommends that we've done. So definitely a great movie.
1: You know, man, the thing about this that I, I always wonder and I think would have maybe served it better if we were at a place where that could happen, is this would have been a great series. Like a Game of Thrones or Vikings or one of those kind of things that have had, like you could see, like you could really make a great series out of this. And you can have a whole other set of characters back on land in, you know, England who are calling the shots. And, you know, you, you've got a lot of, of, of places to play with here. And it's a shame that we never got another one because this is such a rich tapestry. This movie's like a beautiful painting. If you go to a museum to look at paintings and you expect, something to fly out at you you're kind of in the wrong place and as much cool action as this movie has and we certainly have talked a lot about it it's the quiet moments of it and the the scenery and the beauty of it and the acting between these these actors all of the whole cast that really sells this movie and makes it excel so it's it's a strong movie this is definitely a large popcorn for sure and one i would i would that a lot of people passed on or maybe forgotten about but certainly worth revisiting and thinking about again because man it's just a good hidden gem and and like you say if you know you got 25 different streaming services it's going to be on one and if it's on prime that means it's going to be there a while like prime doesn't drop stuff so master commander is certainly worth your time and worth watching folks so large popcorn for me and nick on this one Folks, you can find links to where all of our podcasts are found at filmstrippodcast.com. That'll take you to our anchor distribution site. We're on Apple, Spotify, Google, you name it. And that'll take you there. If you follow us on social media at Pod on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, you'll find posts about upcoming shows things we've got going on and you can also find our link tree where you can go to our letterbox page and see everything we've ever done uh on filmstrip there we're nearing 300 episodes hard to think about that nick but wow we've been doing this a long time man so getting around to that big one and certainly glad we were able to add this one to the collection so for nick i'm jay thanks for listening to filmstrip
0: thank you for listening to filmstrip